September 15, 2013, lecture discussion number 123 on the Book of Romans. And we're at that, uh, where are we now phase? And, um, and uh, where we are is the fourth saying of the seven sayings of Jesus Christ from the cross. From the cross. Uh, it is the first of the two loud sayings, uh, the fourth and the seventh. He says very, very loud in a loud voice, a deafening, frightening, painfully loud voice. And uh, as you know, my position is, is that uh, he has all of creation in mind when he does that. So the angelic realm comes into play here on these two sayings for sure. Definitely on the seventh re- uh, saying, uh, they are the focus, I believe, of that someday. We'll get to that, I hope. And uh, But for now, just recognize the physical reality, which is us, and the angelic reality, or the supernatural reality. All of them hear his voice, and his voice is unmistakable. Um, this is the voice of Creator God. This is the voice of the I Am, the Ancient of Days, the voice that shouts all things into existence from nothing. And I can only imagine what it's like to hear him when he says something like this. And important to know that God himself was on his cross now when he says it. And as he planned to be, at the exact place where he intended to be, this place that he is at is very important to him, and we have to decide why he wants to be at this place when he says these seven things and goes through this crucifixion process. Remember, I've said many times that he intends to to have a suffering phase. Uh, let me, re- I talked to Bill the cow earlier about it. His suffering and our suffering is not the same. He suffers for things that we don't even imagine. So understand that when he don't anthropomorphize our suffering onto him, that's a mistake. But again, he went through a suffering phase, a crucifixion uh, phase, if you will, the suffering or the scourging phase. He's revealing everything about us and about him when he's doing these things. Uh, so always ask, what is he doing? What is he thinking? He is on this place. What is so important about this place? He planned to be at this place, and now he is here. And now he's going to say at this exact place um, that he intended to be at, he's going to say exactly what he predetermined to say. He's not extemporaneously speaking. That is in conflict with omniscience. He has a predetermined Lecture to give. And he is saying it to exactly whom he purposed to say it. So you have to recognize the the audience that he has. He has an angelic audience that he wants to say things to. Why? He has the Romans. He has the the two thieves. He has his his disciples and his friends, if you will, the people that he identifies as friends, saved people who are at a farm. Then he has the Jewish leadership and the religious sections. Of that society. So he's where he wanted to be at the exact place that he always intended to go. And no one could stop him from going there. He's saying exactly what he uh, intended to say from the beginning of time to to who he wanted to say it to. And the time that he said it. Perfect timing. He's following his script. And then it's up to us to try to figure out what it is that he's teaching. And who he's teaching it to. That's our plan. 
and it, uh, our side of it, if you will. It goes without saying. Um, uh, it is obviously obvious that very little understanding can be acquired when you read about the crucifixion unless you begin, as I just stated. You have to begin, we all must always begin with Christ is creator, God manifest in the flesh. If you try to figure out what's going on at the crucifixion without starting there, um, deep trouble for you. You have to say, and we all do, me too, we have to recognize that he is doing what he wants to do, saying what he wants to say, where he wants to say it, and when he wants to say it. All of those are very important to know that that's what he's doing. In other words, he's imposing his will. He's an absolute, total, complete authority and in total control. And attempting to understand the meanings of the seven saints Trying to get them all figured out, much less just the fourth that we're working on today. But attempting to understand the meanings of the seven sayings from the cross without acknowledging that Jesus Christ is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God himself. Well, it's a bad start if you try. If I were going to use an auto racing analogy, you got no tires, you don't have a steering wheel, you don't have an engine, you're pointed in the wrong direction. It's it's hopeless. You're not in the race. Now, you might get hit by a couple of people and roll over and maybe find something that's true. Good. But it's it, what you're doing is fundamentally broken. You know, it's the old, what could possibly go wrong? And a common refrain that I get a lot, especially from the contemporary churches and their folks, they say to me, they love their contemporary services. They love their uh, music and all of these things. And the, um, they don't want to listen to the Bible teaching because they can't understand the Bible. And I'm not surprised at all by that. That will always always be the case. If the Godhood of Christ is ignored or intentionally discarded, you're never going to have any other result than a bunch of people that don't want to learn what's in their Bible. So, to understand the fourth saying, which, as you know, and I keep hammering it because I get people who come and go, the fourth saying of the seven sayings is a quote. He quotes Psalm 22.1. We, to understand it, we must, we must constantly, unceasingly consider this saying from the position of the Godhood of Jesus Christ. This is God quoting this. Now you can make the case, and you're absolutely correct, the Holy Spirit God inspired David to write something that frankly he didn't even understand that he wrote. When he read it back, I'm sure he was exactly the same as Daniel. Daniel read his book of Daniel and went, I have no idea what I wrote, and went and started studying Ezekiel and Jeremiah, hoping to figure out what it was that he had just put down on paper. I believe and I submit that David did the exact same thing. And I say, by the way, this on every passage that we talk about. You have to approach it with the Godhood of Christ in the forefront, and I'm sure it gets tiresome, but as I said, we have so many in the Internet now, the vast Internet audience, as I 
jokingly call it, who come and go and they hear only one lecture sometimes. And I know that's true because they send me very hostile letters vowing to never listen again. I wish they would listen to two. That's what I'm holding out for. And then never listen again. So I try to get something in on all of these sermons, all of these lectures, that maybe will will help them. Anyway, Psalm 22 is very much one of these passages where the deity of Christ is thrown overboard. Whoosh! As soon as they come up to it, grab the deity of Christ. First thing they grab, and they throw it off the boat almost immediately. Uh, generally, in fact, most Bible commentators, Bible scholars, and you know I used to go to meetings where uh, people would ask me my views and uh, I would tell them and, and they weren't happy. And so I've pretty much stopped going to those meetings now. And they don't seem to be missing me. I don't get, I don't get calls. Where are you? Please come back. Most Bible commentators, the Bible scholars, when they read Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15, 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that again, that is not to be capitalized in my view. The me is a small me, is not referring to Christ. And I think that will be obvious here in a few minutes. But when they read that, They cannot move any more quickly to declare Christ to be in despair and to be weak and to be confused and to be miserable and desiring to renege on his own plan of salvation. It is the overpowering view. And it is, uh, and now it has, it has prevailed. I, I rarely find anybody otherwise. I'll talk about a few today that are otherwise. Now, in fairness, the few otherwise, they uh, they know that that view, the weak view of Christ, is not true. But they don't know what to argue with. And so what they do is punt. And that's a lot better position. At least it isn't blasphemy. I really, there's a phone commercial where there's two guys that are, there's a fight breaks out over phones. I just love the commercial, that and the uh, camel commercial. But they, they touch their phones and... and Say we, and I—that's I, my feeling when I read somebody that does not have a horrible view on Psalm 22. The scholars who punt—they say this. They say that no human being can understand why Jesus Christ quoted Psalm 22:1 from the cross. You can't understand it. It is impossible for the human mind. At least, bless their hearts. They have some Christ honoring there. They're not saying that he's weak and in despair and abandoning his own plan of salvation and can't cope. But their view flies into the face of logic. It's a punt. They don't have to. For example, if we cannot understand why he did it, or we're not intended to understand it because there's some things we're not going to understand, but we're supposed to try. I can't understand the totality of the triune nature of God. I cannot understand the totality of free will and God's omniscience, but I can wrestle with it and come to some kinds of, uh, of conclusions. So, I have this one. If I, if he didn't intend for us to at least deal with it, why does he say it? 
And how does this saying then fit with the other six? Because there are seven parts of this. Why, if one part not one part cannot be placed into the design, can't be understood, why did Christ, who is omniscient, include it? Here's a question I always ask people, by the way. You have him reneging from his plan. How old is his plan? He tells you how old it is. Yes, before the foundations of the world, his plan. This is an old plan. Why did he quote Psalm 22, another question, 22.1, in Aramaic? Because he does. Why not Hebrew? He, this is an old plan. He's sitting around putting his plan together, going, I'm omniscient God. When I get to this fourth saying, I'm going to say it in a loud voice, and I'm going to say it in Aramaic. Why? By the way, the common view on the Aramaic, this just is one of these things that we have to deal with here, that you'll have to deal with. Your kids will come home from Bible class, from their Christian school, saying this is why he said it in Aramaic. By the way, if I went to any Christian school in town and said, uh, is Christ on the cross in despair, weak, confused, miserable, and desiring to renege on his own ancient plan of salvation, they go, yes, that's what's happening there. Lori literally one year had to tackle me from getting me, I'm, I'm watching a play at a school my kids went to. And she had to tackle me to keep me in the chair. Because there was a play they put on where God the Father was um, trying to help Jesus and Satan come to an agreement. The implication is obvious that Jesus and Satan are of equal uh, significance and uh, have the same perspectives. And God the Father has to interfere. So they had one kid playing God the Father, one kid playing Satan, helping out you know, it's so, I can't even, fortunately, I've erased most of it from my memory. But Lori had, was sitting next to me during that, and she could watch me very slowly. I'm thinking to myself, my children are here. They were high school kids. They know what I know is true. What do I do? And I almost, she said, do not ruin our life any more than you already do. You sit right here and let this go on. That's right. <laughs> A lot of wisdom there, my friend. <clears throat> the common view is to claim that Jesus Christ, when he said it in Aramaic, was incoherently hallucinating. And that's true. You heard that correctly. The, the, the gaggle of scholars conclude that Jesus Christ was delusional on the cross. It's called the God is unbalanced view. And it prevails. The, the stress was so great for Jesus to handle, for God to handle, he's, Jesus God, so great for God to handle when he's on the cross that he regresses into the language of his childhood. First off, you can, I don't even know how to respond to it other with 
with calmness. Language of his childhood is such an illiterate thing to say about God. God can speak and be heard in any language. Acts 2.8, that's the miracle, is the hearing of him. When he speaks, no matter what language you speak, you hear him in your language. So language isn't a problem for him. He has to deliberately speak in a way for you not to understand. Does that make sense? He chooses to speak Aramaic for a deep Bible teaching uh, effort that he's done. Uh, But this other Christ is in childhood regression and is delusional. That's what people gobble up. They can't get enough of it. And more evidence that Barnum is running the church today. Anyway, I I see that position and I'm in contrast. Big surprise, right? I have the opposite position. I submit that Jesus God is in control, peace by peace, peace step by step, revealing his plan in perfect order in the right exact time for the very purpose of us to figure out what he means by each and every single detail, including the Aramaic detail, including the order of the seven saints. He wants us to learn what he is teaching us. It is a profound lecture. He's a teacher. The teacher. And we're the what? We're the kindergarten class. And yes, it's going to take a lifetime to fully gather and place all of what he said. That's the point. It's his crucifixion phase. For goodness sakes, what do you expect? You think it's easy? Okay, last Sunday we briefly took this run at Psalm 22 as my, our first reconnaissance into it, and I pointed out a few things. Last week I said that this is a Davidic psalm written by King David. It's a song, by the way. He wrote a song. So he intended people to sing it, and they did. It was so popular in the early church that they called it the fifth gospel because of all the New Testament references to it. And they understood it and sang it as a song. Now, one of these days, there's a couple of things I would like to see uh, done. I would like to see artwork that is doctrinally sound, and I would like to see songs that are doctrinally sound. Um, This is one that I wish somebody today would do. Psalm 22. Make it into a song that people will listen to. There's this guy out there now that's trying to take these old hymns and make them contemporary uh, with regard to the bass line and the drum lines pretty much and and some other issues. Trying to get his children to listen to these great doctrinal songs of two, three hundred years ago. And uh, I'm really, really thrilled for him that he has that vision. I hope somebody takes on 22-1. And I hope someday an artist begins to draw what really happened and what it really looked like. That must be the rice cooker, I assume. Okay. But last week I pointed out that King David wrote this Davidic psalm and it has two elements. That's the, one of the key ingredients to understand it. There's two elements to it. Okay, The first element is a complaint element. Psalm 22 
is a complaint. And it is also an, a gratitude. In other words, the, it's opposite. Gratitude. Right? Or grat. Ah. We'll go with praise. Okay? So there's two, two elements. And it's that way throughout the whole thing. So you always have to be looking, where is the gratitude and where is the complaint? Uh, which one is which? And usually the complaint goes first and the gratitude um, element that it contradicts it. They're in absolute opposites. So he writes a song that one phase of it or one verse, if you will, is, is one way, a complaint. And the next, very next verse of the song is uh, the opposite of it, is a praise. And Psalm 22.1, which Christ quoted from the cross, the fourth saint, is a complaint that accuses God of three things. If you were here last week, you remember that. And we can stop right there, as we did last Sunday, and ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. Is it logical? Is it appropriate? Does it make any sense to assign to Jesus Christ a complaint to, directed to the triune God? No. That makes no sense. Let me explain why. Put it in another way. Would the second person of the triune Godhood complain to the first person of the triune Godhood and accuse the first person of the triune Godhood of abandoning the second person of the triune Godhood, if that were even possible? and not hearing the second person of the triune Godhood, if that were possible, and it's not, or not helping the second person of the triune Godhood, which is also not possible. You can't help God. Why not? He's omnipotent. What's that mean? He has all the power. You have no power. I have no power. He has all the power. So when he needs help pushing a car, to use a silly analogy again, I'm stuck on cars today. Does he need our help to push the car? No. You can't help him. It's impossible to help God. So the complaint that he's abandoning or forsaking and not hearing, not listening, and not helping, that's the complaint. That is Psalm 22.1. It starts with a complaint. Does it make sense that God himself would complain to God himself? Because that's your view if you have Christ saying this about himself. 22.1, you see, is three complaints. Got to know that. In the form of three questions. Very important to know that these are three questions. Why have you forsaken me? Now, whoever asks that question thinks he's been forsaken. Is he right? We talked about that last week. Why are you not helping me? Why aren't you listening to me? Is that something that Jesus Christ would ever say to anyone, much less to himself? David asked God those three questions, essentially accusing God of failing him. That's what those questions are saying. Jesus Christ would never do that because why? It's sinful to do so. It's wrong. If, if Jesus Christ says something that's wrong, we have a problem, Houston. Because what's that mean? 
If Jesus Christ ever says something that is wrong and doesn't know it's wrong, what's our problem? We have no omniscience. If we have no omniscience, what else do we not have? We have no omnipresence now, and we have no omnipotence, and now we do not have an accepted sacrifice, and nobody's saved. You've just destroyed the plan of salvation. You haven't, but you think you have. Or maybe you don't know. Deuteronomy 31.6, Hebrews 13.5. That's the answer to that, you see. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you not helped me? Are not, why are you not helping me? Why are you not listening to me? The answer to that is Deuteronomy 31.6, which is also repeated in Hebrews 13.5. Jesus Christ is the author of Deuteronomy 31.6. Paul, I believe, wrote Hebrews, as you know. I have the Paul position on Hebrews. Um, and he says that Jesus Christ said these very words. So obviously he is quoting 31.6 of Deuteronomy and 13.5 of Hebrews. I always say 13.5 of Hebrews because it's just so beautifully written there. I will never, no, never leave you nor ever forsake you. That is the answer to those three questions. Does Christ who wrote it know it, know that? So your position, if you think he's saying it about himself, is then this. Even though he wrote the answer, he doesn't know the answer, and he's just so delusional that we got to cut him some slack. Again, I appreciate the people that uh, say we can't understand this. It's so complicated, such a great mystery. By the way, I mentioned this earlier today with uh, Bill Cow as well. So you can talk to me before the lecture and I'll tell you most of it. I'm going to give you the answer to the mystery of Psalm 22.1. So I think it's figureoutable. Now that's going to get me some really bad mail. But you should know that Psalm 22.1 is a direct opposite contradiction to Deuteronomy 31.6 or Hebrews 13.5. Why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you helping me? Why don't you listen to me is a direct contradiction to I will never, no, never leave you nor ever forsake you. Jesus Christ is the one to whom Psalm 22.1 is said. He is never the one who says them about himself. We're going to get to, so why did he quote it here in a second? It's impossible for him to say those words in a way that applies to him. That would be sin. Those three questions carry the implication that God fails to keep his promises. Because his promise is, is I will keep you. That's the eternal security doctrine. Shows up in Hebrews 13.5, by the way. For those who think there is no eternal security. You either say that God won't keep his promises or is unable. So you either have him unable to keep his promises or his people in salvation are unwilling. Jesus Christ knows the answers to all the questions. He's omniscient. He certainly knows the answer to why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you listening to me? And why aren't you helping me? He knows the answer to that. And so he says it. He quotes it in Aramaic. 
And I think you can start to figure out why he's doing that now, can't you? Those three questions are disrespectful and dishonoring to God. So why did he quote David in Aramaic? Say it again. As an aside, by the way, every Jew who is witnessing this would know and did know that Christ was quoting David's song at Psalm 22.1. Every Jew. Think of the most popular song that is in our brief history as a country. Whatever you may think it would be. A song that everybody knows. And imagine that somebody begins to sing that song. Who would not know? Every Jew would knew that song. And every Jew who heard this in Aramaic also knew that it did not refer to Elijah. So when people said, oh, he's calling for Elijah, every Jew do. That's not true. So that helps you figure out those the, that clue as well. Probably next week I'll get to it. Okay, let's fire again at this. Psalm 22. Here we go. The song. We're not going to get through all of it. But obviously, it's a long song. And, and it has a second a complete song that comes after it. The two songs, Psalm 23 and Psalm 22, are bookends, if you will, or match set. So here we go. The song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. Is that true? No. So if Christ says that, what's, what's our problem? He's saying something that isn't true. He would never do that. You do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. So he cries in the daytime, he cries at night, and he says God doesn't hear him at either time. But you are holy, so I have a complaint. Now what have I got here? Start following that pattern. Here comes a little praise, right? But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. That's the exact opposite of what he just said. Do you see that? You're not listening to me. You've forsaken me. You've given up on me. You won't talk to me. You're gone. But you delivered my father. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. What does that mean? You didn't let them down. They trusted in you and you you did exactly what you promised to do. Which, by the way, he can't help but do. They cried, I'm sorry. But I the worm. Oh, that's this is one of the most incredible verses in all of, uh, of the Bible. Certainly in all of Psalms. This is the most important verse in this song. I the worm. And no man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. There's that deliverance theme, by the way. Not betrayal. Deliver. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. 
Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And then he says, for dogs have surrounded me. I'll stop there. Clearly, the author of this psalm, King David, felt deeply that God had left him alone to, and forsaken him to perish alone with no help. In fact, David entitled this psalm, Psalm 22. This becomes very important to the whole discussion of the puzzle. The hind of the morning. So, I'll wait for somebody in the congregation with musical understanding that say has been going to music school to go ahead and write a wonderful song called The Hind of the Morning. I promise you it's never been written. Here it is, you just need the music now. What's that mean? That's what David entitled this. Knowing that is really helpful, don't you think? From the cross, the fourth saying, in a loud voice heard by all of creation, Jesus Christ might have even sung the first verse of the hind of the morning. The hind of the morning means that David saw himself as the targeted prey of a pack of chasing dogs and predators. He's the hindmost. What's that mean? The chase pack has run him down. He's the hind, the target. That means he's the slowest of the herd. He's the weakest. He's infirmed and he's lame. The one who cannot get away. That's why they target him. That's what the song means, the hind of the morning. And the chase started in the morning. So first thing in the morning, the pack came, picked out the weakest lame one, and attacked him. And he's running for his life. And while David is running for his life, he knows he will soon be caught. Imagine him limping through the woods, old knowing that it is his turn to be eaten. So he's running and he'll soon be caught and torn to pieces. He's constantly crying out to God, My God, my God, why are you letting the pack catch me and eat me? Why aren't you hearing me cry? Why aren't you helping me get away? Praying to be saved, he's desperate to live but it is hopeless. The first one-third of Psalm 22 is generally considered by those who have attempted to decipher the mystery of this song to be the hopelessness section. He starts out with, I'm not getting away. I'm going to be caught. The songwriter has no hope, no faith that God will save him. As he's running, as he's fleeing, soon the end will come. Exhausted, he will be run down and caught and ripped to shreds. 
No help is coming. He will die alone. And panic grips every fiber. That is what this song is about. Now it should be noted here that this greatly puzzles the scholars. Because there is no known incident in the life of David that fits the details of this song. None. This never happened to him. So again, I say to you that he wrote this incredible song that he entitled The Hind of the Morning and had no idea what it meant. Because if he did know what it meant, he would have told somebody what it meant and it wouldn't have been a mystery because it was always a mystery. It's always been a mystery. It's one of the great mysteries of the Bible. No one has ever solved it. Well, that's not true. Somebody did solve it. He solved it from the cross. We'll get to that in a minute. The New Testament contains 15 messianic quotations of Psalm 22, and it cannot describe the crucifixion of Christ adequately either. So it doesn't have an incident in David that fits it, and it doesn't quite do the job with the crucifixion, even though there are pieces that are clearly perfectly present at the crucifixion. The, the crimson worm, I am the worm, that's at the crucifixion. That's amazing. The ridiculing is at the crucifixion, word for word, by the way. The pierced hand and feet and the dividing of the garments, those are perfect. But Jesus Christ did not run. He did not run in fear. He did not run in terror. He was not chased down. He is not infirm. He is not the hind of the morning. He's not weak. He's certainly not lame. Come on. He surrendered, much to the great shock of Satan and Judas, who were stunned by that. They expected him to do what? To kill the Romans and everybody that came. And he did knock them all down. And I'm sure Judas was going, yeah, we got, okay, we're all still alive here. This isn't good. But he surrendered. This, by the way, the killing is out of Elijah and Elisha. Uh, 2 Kings 1 and 2. Jesus Christ did not panic. He cannot panic. It's impossible for omniscient God to panic. Fear is sin. And he has no fear and no sin. It's also impossible for Jesus Christ to have unanswered prayers. It's impossible for him to be forsaken. Omnipresence cannot be alone. Jesus Christ cannot be killed. He knows that. He makes a very, very plain point that he knows that. That he has to lay down his own life because it can't be taken from him. John 10, 18. And I always ask this question when I find myself at the mystery of Psalm 22. Would Jesus describe himself as the hind of the morning? Is he the slowest of the herd, the weakest, the lame, the sick? No, he can't describe himself as any of those. He is the one that heals those. I ask this all the time. How fast is he? Keep in mind that he created time and light. So how fast can he move? Can the pack catch him? 
anybody going to catch him? And that's ridiculous, isn't it? Can we surround infinite infinity? Can we corner infinity? Can we trap him? He's illogical. So, yes, there are very specific exact events recorded at Psalm 22 that are present at the crucifixion. No disagreement. In fact, that's fantastic. We'll get to that next week. But this is a great mystery. Again, there are a few commentators, and I have to keep praising them, who assert that this mystery is so great, we'll never solve it, any of it. But I, I disagree, as I've been saying. But I really respect their awe of it. At least they know they're in awe of what is this is. They don't come up with some, what's the word I want? Help me here. Stupid idea that Christ was weak, confused, miserable, despair, lame, desiring to renege on his own plan of salvation. At least they don't do that. They're in awe of Psalm 22, as they should be, as we all should be. They understand this, the mystery of this amazing psalm really comes down to what is what and who is who and when is when are the Hebrew principle of double reference. The Bible is written with the Hebrew principle of double reference. You can solve it if you know the title and you know the Hebrew principle of double reference. That's how you solve Psalm 22. It's essential. You solve it, like I said, double reference is necessary to unraveling it. For example, King David was never captured by his enemies facing execution. Uh, King Saul was. You make a case for Absalom, maybe. Saul decided, I'm taking the bullet, or in this case, the sword. I'm not going to let him get me. I'm cornered, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to make it. Psalm 22, if you read it correctly, you're going to notice it's a song describing a treed animal clinging to life. In this case, a human being up on a tree or, say, a cross. But up above, so I have a treed animal clinging to life above, having run as far as it could, exhausted and spent. It almost ran itself to death. By the way, doesn't that I poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like wax. His heart almost burst from running. We have countless examples of animals being pursued that will run until their hearts explode. Did that happen to Christ? No. So who did it happen to? Never happened to David, and it can't happen to Christ, by the way. Not did it happen, it's impossible for it to happen. Can God get exhausted? Does God get tired? You see him all the time. Christ, they say he's sleeping. Oh, those are fantastic statements. You have omnipotence versus exhaustion. And yes, I know about the kenosis theory, you folks out there on the Internet. Please don't write me about that nonsense. Send me something thoughtful, if you must. Something that hasn't been thoroughly and easily discredited. A Hebrew double reference is everywhere in the Bible. The two places it is most prominent, Isaiah 7, you can make the case for Isaiah 
uh, 11, but Isaiah 7 is one. You'll see it also brought up at Zechariah 9 a lot. But the two most places where it is prominent, number one is Psalm 22. This is where it is happening in a way that is extraordinary. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, those of you who have his book that explains it, uh, calls this principle the law of double reference. I'm reluctant to go so far as to call it a law. He, he casts out any possibility of double fulfillment. Uh, we'll get to that next week at all uh, as well and explain what he means by that. Um, I'm not so sure that that is a completely defendable. The law, but nonetheless, the law of double references uh, states this, that one passage, in this case, all of chapter 22, may reference two events or more separated by great amounts of time. That's really common with the first and second comings of Christ. They will be absolutely right next to each other in the Bible, but we know they're 2,000 years apart. Same thing's happening at Psalm 22. Multiple events are blended into one verse. Part of the verse refers to one event. Part of the verse may refer to a different event thousands of years in the future. And you have to know the Bible was written like that, and you have to know that's particularly the case with Psalm 22. David certainly felt forsaken in his time of wickedness. For sure. When he murders Uriah, but also at his census. He has three choices at his census. And we'll get into the times where David is the most wicked and we'll evaluate Psalm 22 with that. And Israel, as you know, is pursued in the tribulation, surrounded, execution imminent, total, complete annihilation imminent. And Christ did, in fact, have lots cast for his mantle. Uh, those are three distinct events separated by great amounts of time, all blended into one passage. And as I said, I'm going to focus primarily on David's three choices of Second Samuel 24. I'm going to look at the campaign of Armageddon for Israel, their flight into Basra, and, and then why Christ quoted Psalm 22.1 from the cross. You see, Israel is always thought of itself as what? When they heard this song. Who were they? They think, and always have thought, that they are the hind of the morning. The song is about them being the hind of the morning. But from the cross, Jesus Christ in Aramaic does not call them the hind of the morning. What does he call them? They are the bulls of Bashan. They are the dogs of the pack. Not the hind of the morning. They're the raging lion. That was a stunning statement. They knew immediately why he said it. He was revealing the answer to the mystery that is Psalm 22. Everyone that heard him start singing this song realized he is calling us the pack of dogs. Not calling us the pursued hind of the morning. And they knew the song 
And no one until Christ at the cross could explain the song or what it meant or how it fit or what it was trying to say, what it revealed. No one. You see, that's what he always does, isn't it? Nicodemus comes to him and he explains things to Nicodemus that no one knew. And then he goes about giving him something else to think about. The Sadducees who said there was no proof of resurrection in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And Christ said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist, are still alive. Proof of resurrection in the books of Moses. The same thing in Proverbs 30. What is the name? See, that's Nicodemus, right? What is the name of the second person? He answers a mystery that no one had ever answered. The answer to the, what is the name of the second person of the triune Godhead is salvation. That is the name of him, Yeshua. So he all the time finds mysteries that he, of course, knows are mysteries. Because why? Yeah, another big duh. He's the writer of the Bible. He is the Word. And this is an example of that. And when he said this, they all knew that he had solved the mystery of the hind of the morning. And next week, we're going to try to figure that out.